Can I pray for us even all this morning as we look to God's word um, and ask him for help because this is an endeavor where we need the living God to work through his living word. God, we love you and we're so thankful for your providence and your control. Lord, we're grateful even for the truth that we just sang. God, we sing not just as individuals who worship God, but as a corporate body. Part of the reason we sing together is so that we would encourage the person next to us with possibly and I'd say likely, imperfect vocals. And so that they would hear the people of God lifting up the name of God. And so that as we all sing in unison, yet not I, but Christ in me, we're reminded as a church family, Stonebridge will go on, not because of the strength of our own bootstraps, but because of the grace of God that sustains and carries and saves and sanctifies and seals us. Lord, we pray as we look to your word this morning, speak to us the voice of God and not a man, the voice of God and not a man. We pray this in your name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Jonah chapter one, verse one. Let me read the whole chapter. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, or Amittai. It says, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Then the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, how is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us now on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation and where do you come from? Where is your country? From what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened. And they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, what should we do for you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that you are on account of me, this great storm has come upon us. However, the men rode desperately to return to land, for they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, we earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Previously on Jonah. Okay, we're recapping. Last week we began what is likely a two-month series in the little book of Jonah. If we're thinking back to what we looked at contextually last week, it is a time of profound spiritual darkness and moral declension in the life of Israel. King Jeroboam is... The second is the king, and it gives this descriptor of King Jeroboam the second. He did what was, talk to me, evil in the sight of the Lord. 
And as is often the case, the people of Israel follow suit with their evil king. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Israel had rejected God's prophets. They had spurned God's word. And consequently, they had forfeited God's blessing. This was a tragic time. And amongst those who had remained faithful to Yahweh, there was this pressing question. Who is God going to raise up at such a time as this, this dark time spiritually where the nation is rejecting God's word and fleeing from God's law. We had Elijah. He was a prophet of boldness and faithfulness. And he also mentored Elisha, but they have both gone to be with Yahweh. Who is God going to raise up to herald God's message to God's people? Who is going to stand in the gap? Who will God send to shine as an agent of light and purity in a world of darkness and pollution? Enter stage right. Jonah, son of Amittai, 2 Kings 14, 25. It says a prophet emerges to the scene and it says that the Solomonic borders were restored and they remembered just as Jonah the prophet had prophesied. The people look around. Could this be the man? Could this be the man who's next? He will herald God's message to God's people. He's up next. And in the book that bears his name, God comes to this prophet and says in verse two of chapter one, arise and go to Nineveh. Surely you would expect that the following verse would say, so Jonah, the prophet of God, immediately got up in obedience to his king. But it says this, but Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. 3B, he paid the fare and went down into the ship from the presence of the Lord. The irony is the man who had prophesied about the restoration of Israel's borders is unwilling to cross those borders to proclaim God's message to lost sinners. Here in Jonah's flight, we see what sin is at its fundamental core. It is a rejection of God's word and it is a flight from God's presence. God had called Jonah to arise and go and instead Jonah goes down to Joppa, down to the port and down into the belly of the ship. This is what sin does. It brings you down, down, down. God had called Jonah to go 500 miles east and instead he goes 2,000 miles west. And so while his orientation is west, his spiritual orientation is down, down. He's fleeing from his calling. He's running from God. And anytime you run from God, there will be a boat ready to depart right on time. What a fool's errand to run from the God of all creation. Jeremiah 23, 24 says, am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord. Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. Jonah is on the run, though. Why? Well, it's not just because the Ninevites skinned their enemies alive, cut off their heads, put them on stakes, and parade them around the city. It's not just because they're professional dismemberers of their enemies. It's because Jonah cannot handle the thought of God showing mercy on someone like them. 
Jonah would have thought. No, God's mercy is for people like me. Not for people like them. Jonah's heart couldn't be any further from God's. God's heart is a heart of mercy. He is a just God. He punishes sin, but he does not delight in the punishment of the wicked, but he desires all men to come to repentance. And God in his heart warns people of their sin so that they might turn. We looked at this last week in Jeremiah and come to him in repentance because God delights in saving sinners. And if you're a Christian, can you say amen? He loves to save sinners and he loves to pour out his love on unworthy people. This is who God is, but this is too much for Jonah to handle. We can be hard on Jonah, but as we will see, we are not far different. End recap. Opening scene, episode two. Look with, verse, with me at verse four. It says, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea and there was a great storm on the sea, so the ship was about to break up. Jonah was on the run from God, and maybe he thought as he ran, I'm eventually just, I think my call and commission is going to disappear. But God is going to react to Jonah's rebellion. The first three verses portray this hurly-burly of Jonah's departure. And then God enters the scene. Can I just ask you, What's the worst thing that could have happened to Jonah? What's the worst thing that happens to anyone running from God? God allows them to do it. The worst thing that can ever come upon an individual is that in their flight and rejection of God, he lets them. This is God's ultimate judgment upon a nation, people, culture, kingdom. Is in Romans 1, he parodidomai in the Greek, he gives them over to their sin. It says in Romans 1 that the people exchange the truth of God for a lie. They worship the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. They begin to exchange unnatural love with one another and God lets them do it. Meaning that God's grace is shown even to unworthy lost sinners as in certain cultures he restrains wickedness. But when people continue to reject God and continue to spurn even their conscience, the worst thing that God can do is he goes, go your own way. But God is so gracious. Have you ever thought about a storm in your life being a manifestation of God's grace? Here God is going to hurl a great wind in order that he might bring Jonah back to himself. This word in verse four for hurl is the same word used when King Saul hurled a spear at David. And here God is seen to be a divine warrior, but he's not throwing projectiles like a sharpened spear. He's throwing a great wind on the sea because God can do whatever he wants with the wind because he is the sovereign king over nature. He not only holds the sea in his hand, but he holds the destiny of all those who venture upon it. We looked at this attribute of God when we studied Psalm 103 a few weeks ago, but God is sovereign. And although this book is only 48 verses long, it is dripping with the doctrinal truth that God is in absolute control. He's a sovereign king. Right here, he's going to hurl a wind. This isn't some random storm. Who's sending the storm? God, it says, then Yahweh hurled a great wind. You know what he's gonna do next? He's going to appoint a great fish. It's not like some random fish comes and swallows Jonah. It says that God goes, 
you. Then he's going to commission that fish to vomit Jonah back up on dry land. Then he's going to cause the people's heart to repent. Then in chapter four, while Jonah waits on a hill to see if God will punish the Ninevites, he's going to cause, it says, a plant to grow. Then he's going to send a worm to eat that plant. And then he's going to send a scorching east wind. There's no coincidences in scripture. This book is about a little prophet who thinks he is judge, jury, and determiner of what God should do. And the whole book, God is going, you don't understand. Our God, Psalm 115.3, is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases with whomever he pleases. He shows mercy on whom he wants to show mercy. He is a sovereign king. Verse five, it says, then the sailors became afraid and every man cried to his God and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. I, last few years, I've flown a fair amount. Sometimes there's turbulence, and if there's turbulence, I kind of look to the, the flight attendants. And if there's no cause for concern, you know, there's no cause for concern if the flight attendants are still texting, which is kind of what they do, you know. I'm, can I get my, no. <laughs> Why don't you finish that Instagram? Okay, so there's no cause for concern, but when the, the pilot comes on the intercom and says, all is lost. <laughs> We're doomed. Everyone begins to panic. And here, understand this. You have veteran mariners, seasoned sailors who have spent their whole life doing one route. We remember last week in Chronicles, it says that a voyage to Nineveh was three years. They would have done the same journey but here they are crying out for their life. And it doesn't say one of them, oh, the wimpy guy. It says all of them, which means that the burliest master commander-esque guy is saying, oh, God, help us throw everything over. They were throwing over their entire livelihood, all of their cargo, all of their possessions, everything they owned, because what good are your possessions if you're dead? It was England's King Richard III who cried out in the midst of his defeat in battle, my kingdom for one horse. Likewise, any of us would give up any amount of money or possessions to save our lives. I want you to picture with me the perfect storm. The men are screaming. Water is pouring into their faces. The mast is creaking. The sails are ripping. Barrels are rolling. They're trying to gather themselves. Hans Zimmer is the score. They're crying out to their own God, it said, because polytheists believe that there are specific, particular deities in particular places for particular things. So they're rolling the lottery. They're just rolling the slots. Just, come on, I, I just, I gotta get, we gotta get the right God for the right place for the right problem. So they're, come on, try this God, try this God, try this God, try this God. There are no atheists in foxholes. Trouble and tragedy compel people who are made in the image of God to call out for someone transcendent. This is why John Calvin always used to talk about that people are born constitutionally religious. Despite the fall, there remains this inborn subject of consciousness in the midst of trouble, in the midst of tragedy for people to pray, to call out to God. I remember just even, it was last year, I think it was the, if you guys were watching the football game, DeMar Hamlin had like a heart attack on the field 
And on SportsCenter, it was shocking. One of the commentators just said, I don't know what to do. I, I just feel like we, we have to pray. And it was like, this guy's gonna get fired moment. But it was like this, uh, we, we don't know what else to do. And it was incredible to watch pagan commentators just go, you know, around him, just being like, yeah, I guess that's the only thing we can do. Because God has built in people a innate understanding that we need supernatural strength. We need someone else. But the world's religion is so empty. Here's the heart of idolatry. Man knows God exists, but they don't know who he is. On the surface, it seems so spiritual, but it's so empty. They only call on God in case of emergency. But you have to give them credit, right? Because as is often the case today, pagans are more committed to their false gods than Jonah is to the one true living God. Where is Jonah, by the way? Where is the only man who could tell them where and who God is? Where is the only man who could save not only their vessel, but save their soul? Where is Jonah? There's a drama taking place here. Picture the scene, a storm. Where's Jonah? Well, the music changes from its flurry as the camera shifts from the sailors on top to a man out cold down below. The sailors are fighting for their lives and Jonah is snoring. The idea here is that it says in, in verse five that Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship. Jonah is not in his private cabin. You need to understand this. He is in the stern. The stern is often where they would hold all the heaviest cargo. And Jonah is hiding there and sleeping there amongst the crates and grates and barrels. He's hiding not only from God, he's hiding from anyone and anything that would prick his conscience. Maybe Jonah had begun to think, well, my faith, after all, it is a private matter. I don't want to impose my views upon them. And in fact, it might just be best if I stay out of their way. And it's likely in the mariner's quest to throw out all of the cargo that they come across this sleeping man. And they're shocked. How are you sleeping? But he's not taking a cat nap. You need to understand this. The word in Hebrew is the same word used when in Genesis 2, God put Adam under a divine anesthetic to perform the first surgery. He took from Adam's rib and made woman. The Isha came out of the Ish, and God put Adam not into like a little sleep, a slumber. He's knocked out. And this is what's happening with Jonah. This is a divine hypnotic. He is out cold. And so they come to him confused. Even the musicians on the Titanic did what they could in a hopeless situation. But Jonah is in a stupor, unaware, oblivious, and unconscious to what's happening around him. I want to just, for today, I want to draw out five observations about sin that we see in just these couple verses. If you're a note taker, five observations about sin. Why was Jonah sleeping? Number one, because sin is exhausting. 
Sin is exhausting. Jonah is not just taking a nap because he's, he's wearied from his journey to Joppa. He is taking a nap. He's, he, he's out cold because his conscience is screaming. He's running from God. And if you know God, sin is exhausting. Even in Pilgrim's Progress, it says that Christian, the main character, has this burden upon his back. He can hardly take another, another step because disobedience is draining. Sin promises life. It promises joy. But in the end, it's just exhausting. Turn with me to Psalm 32 for a moment. I want you to see this with your own eyes. Psalm 32 says, this is post David's murder of Uriah because he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then got her pregnant. He wants to cover it up, so he tries to kill and succeeds in killing her husband. And it's for nine months that David goes like this to his sin, holding on. It's not until Nathan the prophet comes and says, you are that man. But it's for nine months that David suppresses what he knows to be sinful. And here's what he says after the fact. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, three words for sin, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Watch this. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained always or away as with the fever heat of summer. He says, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. I want you to know this. There are physical consequences of spiritual rebellion. He said that his life's vitality was drained away as if it was in the middle of the fever heat of summer. I remember when I was a boy, there were weeks in California where it would be a heat wave, um, 110 degrees in Santa Clarita. We were always doing yard work. Um, my dad, you know, we had seven kids. The house was kind of always mayhem, but the yard, that was my dad's territory. So Saturday mornings, I would, we would, you know, take care of the palm trees. Those were maybe an idol in my dad's life. We're still talking through it. Um, trim the rose bushes. I had to cut the grass diagonally because that was the Lord's way. I remember people asking my dad, do you have landscapers? Landscapers. God gave me two sons, you know. And um, I remember there were these weeks, though, where even if my dad changed the sprinkler timer, the grass would wither and it would die his prized palm branches would fall to the ground. And it was about that time we would be able to go collect the various snakeskins that were in Placerita Canyon. And my brother would take these rattlesnake skins and he, we would just tack them on our wall. Like, we are you know, Daniel Boone. Um, but they were those skins, flaky, crispy, and withered. They once encapsulated life, but all they were is an empty shell that had just been zapped by the sun. 
you could touch them with your fingers like this, and they would just turn to dust. This is what the psalmist says sin does to your soul. It breaks you down. It saps you of strength. Disobedience is draining. Rebellion is exhausting. It sucks the life out of you. There is a sleep in Psalm 4 where David says, I sleep with a clean conscience. There is a sleep in Psalm 139 when David says, when I awake, I am still with you. Because God's omniscient eye oversees and superintends his beloved children. There's the sleep in Psalm 23 where it says, you lead me beside still waters and you restore my soul. Then there's the sleep where you wake up and it's as if you haven't slept in a year. Then there's the absence of sleep, the insomnia that comes from running from God. Even if you fell asleep, it's as if it never came because sin is exhausting. Life becomes lethargic when we, rather than obeying God's word, submit to our sinful desires. It's possible that a converted person can run from God. That's why one reason, at least, that this story is in the Bible, to warn us, don't be like Jonah. Whether it's David who felt like his bones were breaking or Elijah, we talked about this man last week, it says that he ran from Jezebel he flees from the promised land because he's so scared. He took on 850 prophets at Mount Carmel, and then he's running from one woman. And it says he gets there under a juniper tree, and he says, it is enough, God. Take my life. I'm done. Or whether it's Jonah here. In Psalm 51, the parallel passage of Psalm 32, David says, restore unto me not my salvation, because you cannot lose your salvation if you're a Christian. Once saved, talk to me, always saved. But you know what you can lose? David says, restore unto me the joy. Because it's impossible to live in sin and have the joy of the Lord simultaneously. Because disobedience sucks the life out of you. Jonah can't see what's happening. He doesn't know the peril he's in. He doesn't hear the hounding wind. He doesn't hear the crashing sea. He doesn't hear the sailor's screams. He's out cold because sin is exhausting. But number two, sin also blinds you from your calling. Sin blinds you from your calling. Jonah was God's man for God's hour. He was trained in the school of the prophets, likely. He had been commissioned by a loving God. Yet the further he pursues his rebellion, the more he robs himself and blinds himself of the calling that God has put upon his life. This is not to say that God doesn't use sinners. He does use sinners, myself included. But the truth is, when we pursue sin, we delude ourselves and blind ourselves from the very objective God has given us in life. Here is a picture of the church today, asleep in the stern while the pagan world screams above. The further we run from God's word, the more distance we become from sharing God's heart. And when we, we become strangers to God's word, we become strangers to our calling. Do you understand? I know God's will for your life. I know God's calling on your life. 
And when you live in sin, you blind yourself from the reality that your general has given you clear marching orders. Arise. We lose sight and anticipation when we sin of Christ's return. We no longer have our hope fixed on heaven and purify ourselves, even as he is pure, it says in 1 John 3. We fix our hope when we sin on the things of this world, and then we, we forget that only that because God, who is rich in mercy and has given us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading because of the living hope of Jesus Christ, that's, that's our calling But here's Jonah. Death is on the sailor's doorstep. Eternity is on their mind. They're calling out to pagan gods. And where is the church? Where's Jonah? Sound asleep. Because this is what sin does. This is the alley-oop from God to be a witness for God. But sin silences your witness. It blinds you of your calling. God does not use perfect vessels, but he does use pure ones. 2 Timothy 2.21, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, watch this, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. I wanna be a vessel ready to be used by the master, don't you? And it says then that if anyone cleanses himself, coming to God, we need this forgiveness. We need a cleansing of even our conscience because sin silences our witness. Number three, sin affects those around you. Maybe you're familiar with the phrase, sin will take you further than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. And it'll cost you more than you ever thought you'd have to pay. But can I just add a a fourth? Sin will also affect more people than you ever thought it would affect. Why are the mariners in such danger? Because of Jonah's sin. In Psalm 51, David has committed adultery with Bathsheba. He got her pregnant, and then he murdered her husband. But then he says, against you and you only have I stand and done what is evil in your sight, right? Because there's a truth that sin is always horizontal before it's vertical. It's ultimately horizontal before it's vertical. But understand this, sin always has horizontal ramifications. The disobedience of one always involves the peril of others, even innocent people. In the Old Testament during the destruction of Jericho, God instructed the people of Israel to not take any of the devoted things from Jericho. But it says one man, and I remember my dad always telling me the story, Achan stole the bacon. And we're like, Achan stole the bacon, ha, ha, the rhyme. But Achan goes in, and it says he took the devoted things and he hid them in his tent. And it says, as a consequence, the entire nation was defeated at Ai. And then God comes to Joshua, and Joshua's confused. What? I thought you are our God. And God says, you have sin in your camp. And it says then, he comes to Achan and he says, confess and give God the glory. What did you do? And what happens? Achan and his entire family are stoned. It says that when David numbered the people, 
it was a sin because numbering the people was kind of this manifestation of the fact that David was trying to see just how powerful his kingdom had grown. And God had told him not to number the people. And it says that he numbered the people in disobedience. And it says that 70,000 of the people died in pestilence for his disobedience in numbering the people. Sin is indeed something that is between us and God, but it always involves other people made in the image of God. Could it be that there is a matter in your life you've convinced is a private sin? Your private sin has public consequences. Number four, sin calluses your conscience. Look at verse six. It says, so the captain approached him and said, how is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we would not perish. Sin calluses your conscience. At Hume, the camp I worked at in the Sequoia National Forest, there's an emergency test alarm every Monday at noon. On Sunday night, the first night of camp, it'd be like, hey, everybody, tomorrow there's going to be an all-camp emergency alarm. You're going to hear that alarm go on and then off. If at any other point you hear it go on, off, and back on again, it's a true camp emergency. And this is a siren. This thing is blaring. Hume's a big camp, 400 acres, and you could hear this from anywhere. It disrupts your conversation. It stops you in your tracks. You can hardly move it so loud. It's alarming. But what I found is that after weeks and weeks of running camp and years and years of running camp, that alarm would come on and they'd be like, don't you hear that? You go, hear what? Oh, it had become a low hum to me. I could hardly even hear it anymore. I'd become so used to it. This is what sin does to your conscience. What once was alarming, turn away, turn away, flee, run, becomes just a low hum. Your conscience is a God-given gift to you to warn you when you are on the path of sin. And yet when you suppress it and turn down the volume, you lull it to sleep by justifying the very things that were once loud sirens in your heart and mind. And after hitting the snooze over and over and over and over and over again, you don't even hear your alarm. I used to call people before I had like important things in the morning, just anybody, please make sure I'm up in the morning because I couldn't hear my alarm. Jonah is starting to grow accustomed to his sin Yes, sin is exhausting. But even when he's asked by the captain, where are you from? What do you do? From what people are you? He's silent. Because his disobedience is evolving. And his conscience is being seared. I've talked a little bit about our children's Sunday school. And I, I keep on saying it, and I'll keep on saying it. Like, I don't, I don't live with the assumption that the hundred or 60 or so kids that come to church are Christians. Why would I? I don't know if God's convicted them of their sin and done a miracle in their heart, but what we do as a children's ministry is we want to give them a high view of God, who he is, 
You know the other thing I want to do? I want to inform their conscience so that their conscience, it says in Galatians that Paul said, my conscience condemned me. I knew I was a sinner. I knew I was outside of God's word and God's will. Consciences preach strong sermons to those outside of God. And so we filter and funnel and inform their conscience through the revelation of God's word, hoping that God would convict them because that's what the Holy Spirit does. He convicts the world about sin. And this is a gift that God has given to us. I remember when I was first starting to learn guitar, I moved from, Cal- I moved from Chicago to California and um, I wanted to take guitar lessons so bad because I'm like, if you're gonna live in California, you gotta surf and play guitar. And apparently no one does. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I went to take guitar lessons with this guy, Tavi Gennaro. He's a Romanian instructor. And he said, Johnny, what song do you wanna play? It was a very easy answer for me. What if I stumble by DC Talk? So I was like, gotta learn it, then Jesus freak if you have time. And uh, I remember the first lesson, he was making me hold like a position on the guitar. And it was as if you were taking sharp wires and cutting through my fingers. I remember just being like this and looking at my brother who was in the guitar lesson with me, and it was like, you know, know, um, we were just dying, you know? And I remember Tavi just saying, Johnny, you hold that every single day for three months, and I promise you, you'll feel nothing. That's what sin does. It cauterizes that which was once sensitive. Could it be that there's something that you no longer feel anything about? This is sin. Calvin says, the torture of a bad conscience is the hell of a living soul. We must keep our consciences sensitive by informing them through the light of Scripture and stay away from even morally neutral things that violate our conscience and make sin normal to us rather than appalling Today's culture seeks to aggressively silence conscience by saying it's the product of tradition and misinformation, but the warning here is as real as pain to the body. This this warning is so real to the soul, it cannot be neglected. It's a scary place to no longer be pricked by that which once alarmed us. Is it possible that someone in here has curb-stomped their conscience? Many people think, oh, God will forgive me, but those who continue to sin and use the grace of God as a divine credit card that they swipe with unlimited credit, they not only trample on God's grace, but they desensitize their soul. The prods that once used to alert you and awake you are now like gnats flying into a massive building. One old Puritan put it this way, if we do not keep short accounts with God in our conscience, it'll not be long before our once sensitive spirits will fail to respond to the touch of his hand or the sound of his voice. And so the captain says to Jonah, arise. Jonah must have thought he was having a nightmare because these words are strikingly reminiscent of the very first words that God came to him and said, arise and go. And then the captain says, arise. Jonah would have thought, get me out of here. The hound of heaven is coming after him and his conscience is getting harder and harder and harder. And he plugs his ears and he closes his eyes. The irony here is the man says, the captain in verse 6b, perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish 
What an ironic statement. Perhaps your God cares. Jonah would have responded in his own heart. That's my very problem with the guy. He cares about sinners. I hate that about God. I hate that he cares so stinking much for people that are vile and ungodly and wicked. Perhaps your God cares. That's why I'm running from him. Pray. Jonah can't pray. In verse seven, it says, each man said to his mate. I mean, it just moves on. So there's silence from Jonah. He says, get up, call on your God. But there's no call on God from Jonah. You know why? Because number five, sin foils our fellowship with God. There's nothing from Jonah here. His lack of concern is incredible. He only wants to follow God when it's on Jonah's terms. He is unbelievably complacent in the midst of dire need. And here's the sad thing. A heathen ship captain is prodding and admonishing this prophet of God to pray, being more aware of the power and efficacy of prayer than the prophet of God. The actions of the sailors may have been driven by fear and panic, but they were actually, I mean, at least practical expressions of their faith. Their gods may have been fake. I mean, in Isaiah, it says, you use wood to make a fire. You also use wood to carve it into a statue and you bow down and worship it. That's how stupid idolatry is. But their, their gods may have been fake. Their beliefs and convictions may have been misguided, but at least their actions were thoroughly correct. They knew they were dependent on someone greater than themselves, and they knew they had to express that dependence. Jonah's God was the true God. His beliefs were the true beliefs, but his actions were wrong. Rosemary Nixon says, right belief is no better than wrong belief if it is not corroborated by right action. Jonah could not pray. You know why? Because consistent rebellion blunts the keen edge of our prayer life. Our fellowship with God is hampered. How could Jonah run to God's presence in prayer? That's what prayer is. How could Jonah run to God's presence in prayer when it was God's presence he was trying to get rid of? Every time you sin, you run from God. Sin is practical atheism. Every time you sin, you're running from God. And Jonah is encouraged, pray to God. How could I pray? How could I run to God? This is what sin does. It's exhausting. It blinds you of your calling. It affects those around you. It calluses your conscience. And it foils your fellowship with God. So where's the hope, Stonebridge Bible Church? Turn with me to Matthew 12. And look with me at verse 38. Matthew 12, 38. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he said, 
He answered and said to them, And an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Thank God someone greater than Jonah is here. And this greater Jonah was also once exhausted and fell asleep. He fell asleep in the midst of a great storm on the Sea of Galilee. But he slept the sleep of a clean conscience. His crew also came to awaken him, and there's so many similarities, and yet there's a major, major difference. Jonah fell asleep because of his rebellious disobedience. Jesus fell asleep because of his sustained obedience. Jonah fell asleep under the frown of God. Jesus fell asleep under the favor of God. One could not calm the sea until he was thrown over. One woke up, rubbed his eyes, and said, Hush. Be still. Thank God for the greater Jonah. Because if you are exhausted by sin, and if you've cauterized your conscience, and if you've spurned God's calling, and you're just tired, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest for your souls. You know why? Because there is no greater fatigue than that of a wounded, weary conscience. So fall upon his mercy. Let's pray. God, we're thankful that someone greater than Jonah is here who was tempted in every ways to rebel like we are, yet he did not sin. Lord, we're thankful for the warnings. We're thankful for the imagery of what sin does. Lord, I know that even in my own life, Lord, there's so much sin. Cleanse me, God. Cleanse our church. Make us vessels ready to be used by the master of the house. Lord, we pray that we would heed the warning of Scripture. And we're also thankful that you correct us and you restore us. We're thankful you're sovereign. We're thankful even as we, many of us, do this membership class together this afternoon. Would you bless our time? Unite us together. Suture our hearts. We pray this in your name and all God's people said, amen.